Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Mohamed Gamaldine, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Eaglin about her new book, Sweet Fuel, A Political and Environmental History of Brazilian Ethanol. Dr. Jennifer Eaglin is an Associate Professor of Environmental History and Sustainability at Ohio State University. Her research examines the history of alternative energy development in Brazil. Eaglin's first book, Sweet Fuel, A Political and Environmental History of Brazilian Ethanol, published by Oxford University Press uh, in 2022, explores the history of Brazilian sugar-based ethanol development from the 1930s to the 2000s and the associated environmental and social costs that accompany the industry's growth. Eaglin's work has appeared in Environmental History and Latin American Research Review. Her work has been supported by various organizations, including the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University, the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, the Balzan FRIAS Fellowship in Freiburg, Germany, the Conference on Latin American History, and the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. She is currently working on her next book project on the Brazilian nuclear energy industry. Dr. Jennifer Eaglin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, hi, thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, so, uh, Jennifer, I wonder if you would begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, that is, where you were born, raised, where you went to school, how you became interested in environmental history, uh, in the environmental history of ethanol in Brazil, and whether you had a mentor or scholarly work that drove your research interests. Hmm. Sure. Um, so I'm actually a native of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I went to undergrad at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. I majored in history and Spanish. I double majored in history and Spanish while there. Uh, And I actually wrote my senior thesis about Spanish women under the Franco regime. Um, 
and so just to illustrate how far away from what I ended up doing, my my early research was um, after uh, after undergrad, I, I actually worked at a law firm for a little while. I became increasingly more interested in Latin America, uh, and I ended up um, getting my master's in international affairs and international economics at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE. Um, and while I was there, I, I, I had a concentration on Latin American studies, and um, I, took a, I took a course with a, a teacher on U.S. foreign policy toward Latin America. And for um, this class and another class that I took, which was like a, a trade liberalization, uh, tra trade liberalization in the poor was the title. Um, and actually in the trade class, my professor had, um, I mean, we were talking, I ended up doing this final project on uh, the impact of corn-based ethanol um, demand in the United States on uh, agricultural workers in Mexico. And as I was developing this project, my the, the professor said, like, oh, if you're actually interested in ethanol, you should also look at Brazil. They're the other largest producer of ethanol in the world. Um, and so then in my other course on uh, U.S. foreign policy toward Latin America, I started doing another project around Brazil's ethanol industry. And so these these two courses kind of guided me um, uh, toward uh, more interest in, in studying Brazil, particularly. I started taking Portuguese classes um, and, uh, and more broadly toward ethanol. And so I actually was lucky enough to win uh, a fellowship, the Boren Fellowship, to go study um, basically to study Brazilian ethanol policy and to study Portuguese in Brazil um, toward the end of my master's program. And so after that year, I, that year in Brazil, I um, applied to graduate school. I ended up going to Michigan State University. I worked with Professor Peter Beatty um, uh, in the history department because as I, as I studied ethanol policy in Brazil while I was living there, um, I also had the opportunity to really see that the policy perspective was not a complete picture, did not create a complete picture of this industry that clearly had a far longer history, um, particularly as I lived in the Northeast for a little while, and, and the, these regions were these huge sugar-producing regions um, that all of this tapped into a, a longer history in Brazil of, of sugar production and um, exploitation, quite frankly. And so, uh, so these were some of the questions that really drove me to, to go back and get my PhD in history around this topic. Um, and so I did my project, uh, I did my studies on Latin American history, um, and I completed my dissertation. And after which, and, and I will say that actually my, my dissertation was not uh, fundamentally looking at, um, looking at ethanol, sugar-based ethanol, you're asking agricultural questions. So certainly I did lots of history of agricultural development, but, but the, the questions about the environmental impact of, um, of the ethanol industry was something that I knew I wanted to expand more uh, after I finished my dissertation. And so um, I started my uh, tenure track position at uh, OSU, in environmental history and 
was really got the support to really move my project in a um, more explicit environmental history direction, which was which was really very cool. And so, um, so the product of all of those things is uh, is this book. So that is fascinating. Uh, we'll learn more about the book and uh, your work uh, as we have a conversation. Um, so I, next, uh, just wondering, could you tell us? How did you come to write uh, Sweet Fuel, a political and environmental history of Brazilian ethanol? You mentioned it's it's based off your dissertation, so maybe um, expand a little bit about what you wrote in your dissertation and um, how uh, you got into uh, ethanol uh, mm-hmm. research early on. Okay. Um, so I would say, as I noted, I, I, I knew when I went to grad school that I wanted to study the, the history of this ethanol industry. So I was already into ethanol by the time I got to, um, to my PhD program. Um, but I would say, certainly, as we all know, when trying to put together a dissertation, the question then became, how do you actually do that, that history of that topic that you're interested in? And so... Um, for me, it was uh, a lot of it involved really narrowing down where I was going to focus my project. And so um, my I mean, the the sugar industry is a national industry in Brazil, certainly. Um, but the largest sugar and ethanol producing region was located in the interior of the state of Sao Paulo. So um, in a region well, in a city, but more broadly in a region called uh, Hibera Preto. Uh, and so I ended up doing a lot of kind of exploration trips to, to Brazil as I was trying to narrow down this project. And, uh, and actually through friends in different contexts in Brazil, when I would tell them this, this was, I'm interested in this industry, they all said, oh, you've got to go to Hibera Preto. Like this is, this is where all the ethanol stuff happens, right? Um, so I, I finally make this trip out to Hibera Preto, which is like a five, five, six hour bus ride from, um, from the city of Sao Paulo and, and really, really found a lot of, uh, opportunity, found a lot of what I wanted to do. I, I was able to, um, connect with, uh, this, this major sugar and ethanol producing family, um, the, the, that. I, I, my dissertation and the book focuses around this family, the Biagi family, um, that really emerges as one of the largest sugar and ethanol producers in in the state, in the region, in the state, in the country in the um, 1970s and 80s. And I was able to um, to do a couple of interviews with um, with one of a couple of one of these family members. Um, and I was able to find a number of regional archives. I, I uh, particularly actually the municipal archive in Hibera Preto. There is also a, um, a, a sugar archive in um, Sertalzinho, which is a neighboring town. And so these things became kind of the guide for the foundation for um, some of the regional history that I knew I wanted to do to, to, to kind of narrow down this this huge national history. Um, And then the sugar and ethanol actually has this longer history in Brazil um, with uh, government intervention. 
that really began in the 1930s explicitly with the creation of the Institute of Sugar and Ethanol or the Institute of Geosugurigialco. Um, so it's known as the IAA. And so that collection of um, documents, which really spans from like the 1930s through um, through the 19, through 1990, really, that's when it was um, deconstructed. Uh, that collection is housed at the National Archives in Rio. Uh, and so that became another central source for my, um, for my dissertation project. And actually the IAA published a monthly journal really for, um, for sugar producers that included lots of policy announcements, but also um, lots of technology and, and environmental information um, that, that is some of which I found many places in Brazil, but actually that is housed almost in its entirety in the, at the New York Public Library. So that became the, the third prong of, um, uh, for my dissertation research. Uh, and so those, those were the central documents that I really um, used for the dissertation. And then, like I said, I knew I wanted to expand the environmental impact um, discussion uh, or analysis for my for my book project and so um, so actually I had I was aware of it I visited it but I hadn't used it uh, the resources yet but the um, Sao Paulo Agricultural School um, which is colloquially known as Izalki um, the is housed in uh, or is located in Piracicaba which is another um, large sugar producing region in the state of Sao Paulo. And so their, um, their library housed all of these um, environmental reports and um, agricultural magazines that I ended up um, getting to use for the, for the book project. And then I also used um, the Sao Paulo's, the state of Sao Paulo's environmental agency, Satespi, um, actually has a library in uh, in Sao Paulo with lots and lots of environmental reports. And so that also became a really cool resource to address this, this water pollution component that is often left out of discussions about ethanol. Um, and so that became uh, central to, to my book project. Fascinating. Uh, thank you for that dive into the archival material. Um, for our listeners, uh, I was wondering. Uh, I, I like for I like to have our guest uh, kind of paint a picture for the natural environment and the landscape that make up the spaces in which ethanol is produced. So maybe if you could speak some uh, about that. But also, I was wondering if you could uh, contextualize uh, uh, Sao Paulo and the region uh, in Sao Paulo that your research is focused on. And it's historical connections to colonialism and then uh, state-driven uh, state agricultural or mono-agricultural uh, mono uh, proje uh, projects. Sure. So um, interestingly, the, the state of Sao Paulo is, has been for a very long time the industrial and uh, agricultural driver of um, Brazil's economy. Um, from the colonial period, sugarcane really was the foundation of um, Brazil's economy, basically from the arrival of the Portuguese 
uh, or shortly thereafter um, through, through the colonial period. Um, Brazil was the largest sugar producer for centuries um, in the world. Um, but by the end of the, well, let's say by the, by the mid 19th century, the new agricultural driver of Brazil's economy was coffee. And coffee was disproportionately produced in the state of Sao Paulo and in the southern region. So where sugar came this in its early history had really um, um, dominated, production really dominated in the, in the Northeast. By this kind of mid-19th century, you see this slow transition of the kind of center of gravity of the uh, of agricultural production from uh, from the northeast to the south with the uh, production of coffee. Um, Brazil was the largest producer of coffee in the world by uh, by the early 20th century by a long shot. Um, and so um, all of these things are, and there are lots, I mean, in the historiography, there are lots and lots of studies about, um, about Brazilian industrialization, but most of them would highlight that, that coffee uh, and Sao Paulo were really central in, in, in building a lot of this capital that, that, um, that turns the state of Sao Paulo and the city of Sao Paulo into um, the economic center of the country of Brazil. And that, that, that statement is still true to this day. It's certainly the, um, the wealthiest uh, state. It's the, it's the largest city. It's something like the fifth, uh, fifth largest city in the world. Uh, the city of Sao Paulo is. Um, and so it's really interesting um, when, when I was doing research in Brazil to, to live in other regions and then to move to Sao Paulo, which is this huge industrial capital center. Um, but the state of Sao Paulo is a very big state and it's a huge agricultural producing state. And so um, it's really interesting to, to start in the city and then for this project to, to move out to the, what, what's known as the interior of Sao Paulo, to move out beyond the city. Um, and so, you know, I mentioned that I took this five, six hour bus ride from, from Sao Paulo out to the interior um, to Hibara Preto. And, and, and the, as, as you move further out of this industrial center, uh, you start to see just fields and fields of sugarcane. And, and for, for my American listeners, um, that perhaps live in the Midwest like I do. I mean, the same way that we just see fields and fields of corn, uh, you just see unending fields of sugarcane um, that go right up to the highway, to the, to the side of the highway um, for, you know, what, what feels like for hours out into, the, uh, out into the interior. And so it's very interesting to, to experience that, that change. And Kiva del Preto is actually a big city in the interior. It's a very big city in the interior, but it's also, it, it just, the, the ride out there illustrates this transition to, to this agricultural center, right? So where, where coffee used to dominate the, the countryside um, and particularly Hibera uh, Preto, the region is going to emerge as a, um, really is an economic and, and eventually and a political powerhouse in the early 20th century because they're major coffee producers. But a lot of the same 
uh, environmental conditions, a lot of the, the, the temperature, the, uh, the gradations of, the, uh, of these rolling hills, the um, waterfall, sunlight, all of these things create a lot of similar conditions to benefit uh, sugar production. So now it, it, and I talk about this a bit in the book, but the, this, this transition um, toward sugar production um, is then going to position it, which happens in the 20th century as coffee, coffee prices internationally um, really collapse and Brazil that had relied so heavily on coffee production for its economic um, um, income for its, for, uh, for its economy really is going to struggle with, with what do we do with all this coffee? How do we get coffee price? How do we get international coffee prices back up? Um, and they're, they're also going to start to encourage some producers to move toward sugarcane production. And, and so this is, this is actually where, uh, are the foundations for a, uh, the emergence of a, a large sugar producing, um, uh, industry in in the state of Sao Paulo um, by the 19, 1950s sugar Sao Paulo is become uh, unseats the uh, Pernambuco Pernambuco which is in the the northeast um, as the largest sugar producing state in the country uh, and remains so um, so it's it's really very interesting to to experience. Uh, or to, to, for me to have lived in the Northeast for a little bit and then to move down to Sao Paulo, to live in the city and then move out to the interior to see sort of um, how we envision these divisions between this, um, these agricultural and, and, and industrial kind of urban settings, but also how, how these histories are all completely connected. Um, and, and that's a lot of what I try and bring into my, into my book as well. Thank you for painting that image of uh, the region and for contextualizing us a little bit. Uh, you say in your introduction, placing the ethanol industry in the context of the uh, context of the country's centuries of varied development strategies provides a window into how effective state intervention was in achieving this goal in practice. In this way, your book, if I may say so, is also a political history of ethanol as a developmental tool. Could you expand on the choice to dive into this side of the story and to connect it to larger issues of labor and the environment? Sure. Um, so um, I, I started my own venture into studying ethanol in Brazil from a policy perspective, right? I mean, that, that's, that's actually what I was doing before I started my PhD program. And so the political component of ethanol is so compelling to me, the political and economic, I mean, those were really the, the, the central aspects of my, um, of my dissertation. And so this question of development and um, which, which is, is so well debated in um, international circles, but certainly in, in, in Brazilian historiography, this question of, uh, of development is is one that that has filled many pages, and so um, so one of my big contributions is bringing the ethanol industry into these discussions about development, where it is often sort of left out 
um, in, in favor of discussions about perhaps from an agricultural perspective, discussions about coffee and industrialization, which I mentioned earlier, um, discussions about sugar and development, or as it's often um, noted about sugar and underdevelopment in, uh, in the Northeast region, or um, industrialization and uh, in the Southern region. And these are, these are all things where actually the creation of the ethanol industry is um, a representation of, uh, of, of a really intentional uh, development by, by the government that actually does successfully produce a, um, a large scale agro-industrial industry or agro-industry uh, where it would otherwise have not existed. Um, and so the, the collections, the, ar the archival collections that I was also able to use focus so much on the, on, on the policies um, that, that were put in place to, to force the creation of an ethanol industry because sugar producers actually in the 1920s, but more importantly, perhaps in the 1930s, were not necessarily quick to jump on the, or many of them were not necessarily quick to jump on the um, uh, ethanol production uh, suggestions provided by the Institute of Sugar and, and Ethanol. And so it's actually with a lot of incentives um, and that the that government intervention is going to successfully uh, incentivize producers to begin um, redirecting sugar, which was at this point overproducing uh, for the domestic and the export market to start redirecting what would have ended up being excess sugar that uh, was driving prices down toward a domestic fuel option instead. Uh, and so this, this starts with, I mean, I, a number of incentives, but most formally in 1931, um, the, the government is going to, the federal government is going to put in place a 5% mandated mixture of ethanol for the national fuel supply. And this helps incentivize um, sustained investment in, uh, in ethanol production. That 5% mandated mixture is going to remain in place for the next 40 plus years. Um, and uh, and th this becomes the kind of the foundation upon which uh, an ethanol industry is able to emerge. Those aren't the only incentives, though, that the that the government's going to put in place. But those that's a, a representation of some of the really explicit measures put in place to make sure that ethanol uh, production would continue to expand where it might not have otherwise. Thank you. Uh, and so. Uh, I want to turn to the environmental uh, history side of things. Um, you start chapter four with an unattributed but wonderfully concise local Brazilian saying, ethanol distilleries are actually Vinas factories that eventually produce ethanol. And Vinas for our listeners is a byproduct of ethanol. I'd love if you could bring in here the ecological costs that you speak of that result from the production of ethanol and the ways in which the state attempted to rectify the environmental damage, specifically as it relates to the use of Vinas as a fertilizer. Awesome. So uh, thank you for starting us off with that quote. I, I, I mean, it is, it is 
really compelling, right? Um, and so I'm going to just really quickly explain how we get from sugarcane to ethanol for any of us that are not familiar to make sure that we can all have this conversation um, on the same informed level. So basically sugar, sugar cane is a perennial um, and it is actually also a product that produces a lot of byproducts, right? So, um, so we're most familiar with producing sugar um, from sugar cane. And so in that process, you first have to crush cane uh, you extract the cane juice, and then in the processing of cane juice into raw sugar, you're also going to produce um, another byproduct, which is um, molasses. So from either directly from cane juice or, and, and I, I do want to note when you crush the cane, you're, you're going to produce another um, byproduct, which is bagasse, which is like the stocky outside of, of cane. Um, but from either cane juice or molasses, you can... Um, you can produce ethanol basically by adding yeast, fermenting, uh, distill, 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 distill. And, um, and then in that process, right, in the distillation process, you are going to produce both ethanol and this byproduct, vinox. So low-grade distillations, low-grade ethanol um, or low-grade distillations of this product uh, really is, is drinking alcohol, but high grade distillations, and I mean like 99% purity and above, and, and often, I mean, you have to add, you often have to add chemicals to get it to like this level of purity. Um, but these high grade levels of distillate, uh, of distilled ethanol are potent enough to run engines. Um, and so this is the ethanol that's used to, uh, in the national fuel mixture, right? Um, but this distillation process, that the byproduct uh, in the distillation process is vinos. So for every liter of ethanol produced, uh, 10 to 16 liters of vinos are produced. So what is vinos? It is a uh, super acidic, really, really smelly, uh, liquidy byproduct, right? Uh, and, and so it's made up of about... 92% water and 7 to 8% um, organic materials. And these organic materials include potassium, calcium, phosphorus, and notably nitrogen. Um, so the so producers for a very long time, um, but particularly once you start having this 5% mandated mixture in the national fuel supply that I mentioned, there's now starting to produce ethanol at, at more concentrated levels and at, at higher rates. Um, producers had traditionally dumped Vinas in local waterways um, for quite some time, and they keep doing this as ethanol production expands. But as perhaps we're familiar, when you dump large amounts of organic material in uh, in waterways, this leads to a number of public health uh, issues and, and environmental ecological issues. Uh, first and foremost, it's going to create algae blooms that are ultimately going to um, absorb the oxygen in the water, which leads to these catastrophic collapses in um, water, flora, and fauna. So most notably, and I, I was using a lot of newspaper articles for, um, to, to document this, 
during the harvest season or right after at the end of the harvest season, as they're doing all of this processing, um, you started to see reports of, of like massive amounts of um, fish just just floating to the top of the water. So much so that sometimes the, there were reports of fish clogging the uh, water, dead fish clogging um, uh, water wheels that were powering uh, some of these these mills um, because that's how rapidly these these um, these fish populations would die. Um, and so as you as you see all these things, one, a lot of these regions are also um, depending on this water source for uh, for fish that are part of their their uh, diets uh, that has its own entire economy um, fishing and also for for the water as a water source. And so um, with concentrated enough, levels of the knots in the water, um, this can bring the oxygen levels down to, to a point that it's no longer potable. Um, interestingly, uh, the collapse in freshwater fish had other major um, uh, public health issues because freshwater fish were actually, or are, um, the natural predators of mosquito larvae. So as the natural predators of mosquito larvae disappear, um, the, uh, these regions experience these huge infestations of, uh, of mosquitoes. Um, and that then you also had public health complaints about, uh, well, one, this is gonna increase the um, spread of mosquito spread diseases like malaria, um, and, and other parasite, parasitic diseases, it's also going to increase um, noise pollution, actually, because residents are going to start complaining about uh, these dense swarms of mosquitoes, just clouds of mosquitoes um, around the city. And so on top of the fact that Vinat smells terrible, uh, like akin to human feces, terrible. So these are all things that are... Um, are really starting to um, wreak havoc on sugar-producing regions and, and the residents in these sugar-producing regions. And so um, as production really expands, it's in, most notably, and I talk about this in the book, in, by the late 1940s, beginning of the 1950s, uh, local communities are going to start to organize to, um, to, to, make sugar producers stop dumping venas in, in local waterways. And so uh, it's really a testament to local, um, local protests. I mean, uh, um, public defenders are going to start um, suing sugar producers for dumping, uh, or ethanol producers, sugar ethanol producers for dumping venas in, in local waterways. And they're gonna try to hold them accountable for, uh, for this, this public health and ecological um, damage and 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 environment not just environmental but also economic damage for um, fishing fishing economies. So um, these are all things that that really come to a head in the in the early 1950s in in Pitasikaba, this neighboring large sugar producing region. They are ultimately going to first start by putting in 
successfully um, uh, limiting um, Vinas dumping with municipal mandates that are ultimately going to move become standard in the in the region and then the state and become federally mandated. Um, but and, and so this is a huge success, but actually compliance remains incredibly low um, in part because enforcement remains relatively low. Um, but in the same time period, sugar producers are, are actually going to also reach out to um, the, the university, the, the Sao Paulo Agricultural School that I mentioned earlier. Um, and researchers are actually going to start um, studying Vinas. And, and, and actually what they find is um, this nitrogen laden liquid um, is actually also serves as a fertilizer alternative. And so, um, so they're going to start trying to, the Institute of Sugar and Ethanol is also going to start trying to promote the use of Venas as a fertilizer alternative. And so some producers are going to, to move toward this, but a lot of producers, even as these dumping, uh, anti-dumping, um, mandates and, um, and, and legislation are starting to come out without a lot of uh, enforcement, they're really not going to comply very much. Um, and so it's, it, uh, production is going to continue to expand and so is the environmental footprint of, of the ethanol industry. Um, but it's not until maybe the, in, until the 1970s when uh, ethanol really moves from a this 5% mandated mixture, um, which really is kind of a really small part of the Brazilian energy infrastructure, um, into a more central role after the oil shock um, uh, in 1973, which then um, Brazil actually relied on, on foreign oil for like 80% of its oil consumption at this point. And so um, the oil shock is going to lead to the quadrupling of oil prices by the beginning of 1974. And for a country like Brazil that was still very, very dependent and thus very exposed to the economic um, uh, impact of, of the oil crisis, they're going to um, try to put together a, uh, and at this point, Brazil's under a military dictatorship, which began in the 60s, in 1964. Um, the military uh, government is going to really look to strategize how to diversify Brazil's energy infrastructure. And um, part of that, what ends up being a very part of that, very big part of that is the uh, creation of a national ethanol program or pro in, in 1975. And so um, in its initial form, its, its goal was to expand ethanol, um, the ethanol mi mixture in the national fuel supply from 5% to 20%, which is a huge, huge expansion, which also from an environmental perspective means that a huge expansion in, um, in sugar production. Uh, and it requires a lot of land change to, to expand sugar production, um, but that also includes a, a huge expansion in um, ethanol production and thus in Vinox production. Uh, there's another oil shock in 1979, um, more importantly for Brazil, they're also going to launch an ethanol-fueled car um, in, commercially in 1979. Um, 
And the success of that ethanol-fueled car, which by 1985 represented over 95% of all new cars on the road in Brazil, ran exclusively on ethanol, it's also going to require a huge expansion in ethanol, sugar and ethanol production. Um, and so to accommodate this, this growing demand, by 1985, uh, Brazil was producing over 10 billion liters of ethanol per year, which conservatively means that they were producing over 100 billion liters of Vinas per year. And so uh, it's really in, in, in this pro-alcohol era that uh, ethanol um, and, and Vinas becomes a, a, a impending, uh, impending catastrophe, ecological catastrophe. Uh, and so that's when um, government oversight and enforcement um, are going to really start pushing the, the increased use of, uh, of Vinas as a fertilizer alternative. And they're also going to start really requiring uh, better storage of Vinas, uh, more oversight on, um, on, on the ways that Vinas is being um, handled and, and distributed. And, and actually the Biagi family that I study were actually really leaders in also developing Vinas concentration, concentrate um, from at, at industrial plants that would then, uh, basically this liquidy product was really expensive to store. Uh, and so the, their strategy was to dehydrate it, um, which then made it cheaper to store, uh, and, and easier to also repurpose for other, um, other uses, which actually included, um, as a animal feed, um, but also as a as a as a fertilizer alternative um, that they were able to also export. So these are some of the the um, alternative uses that that in so, some ways were were around for for a long time, but uh, are really promoted more aggressively in the in the parochial era to help. Um, clean up a, a industry that had actually had a really negative environmental footprint for, for quite some time. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So similarly to the ecological effect, uh, cost to uh, ethanol production, uh, your text interrogates the relationship between labor and energy production, highlighting the human cost to create a national uh, non-fossil fuel industry. 
Through ethanol, you examine the labor strikes that shed a light in the media um, on the paradoxes present in the alternative fuel industry centered around ethanol. If you could uh, speak to some of this. Sure. Um, I mean, one of the kind of driving questions that got me interested in the ethanol industry and doing a history of the ethanol industry was the the human impact um and i i I mean trying to figure out how this this industry that has you know been such an uh, important perhaps representative industry in a long history of uh of labor exploitation from slavery um to uh post-emancipation to continued agricultural um, uh, exploitation in, in Brazil uh, is, and how does ethanol fit into that into that trajectory? Um, certainly, I I look at the ways. So I, I I try to examine how ethanol fits into that trajectory. A um, through a examination of what actually keeps what makes the the ethanol program financially viable. And so much of that, that that national program that I'm talking about from the 70s, so much of that was actually because it was really dependent on the um, the use of, of transitory uh, transitory labor, um, where uh, that, that really undercut a lot of agricultural labor rights that um, that Brazilian uh, agricultural or rural workers had had worked to achieve uh, in in previous decades that were um, sort of strategically, um, if not dismantled, evaded, but with the use of of, um, of temporary workers um, that that were not permanent workers, so they didn't qualify for a lot of the um, the same um, labor. Um, labor benefits that, that permanent laborers had won. Um, and so this, this extends this, this kind of history of exploitation. And so um, I, I talk about how these workers were also able to, to mobilize in um, what becomes really very famous strikes in, um, in 1984 in the Hibet Alperju region in the, in, in what they're known as the Guariba strikes. Um, that are going to produce the first collective bargaining agreement um, between sugar workers, these uh, dominated by these um, uh, temporary workers, also known as derogatively known as uh, boyas frias, um, and and that actually is that means like cold lunches um, because they're not able to. Uh, I mean, they actually have to work out in the field so long that they bring their lunches with them. Um, and so all of these are, are they're going to make demands for um, basic basic labor equipment, um, safety um, in the rides from these um, kind of from from the communal areas to the fields. Uh, you had lots of stories of, of workers uh, getting mangled by the machetes that they're using because they would go over bumps on these on these roads and and the equipment would, would fly everywhere to, to many people's peril. Um, all of these conditions, uh, terrible pay, unequal pay. Um, and, uh, and actually it was also really sparked by um, 
by water, um, uh, public utilities like wa water, the cost of, of, of water um, by the um, by the state utility went up. And so how were all of these exploitative practices linked to, to make sure that these laborers were dependent on um, on worker on on these these companies that were were, were hiring them um, and often they weren't even able to go back they couldn't afford to go back to the regions that they had migrated from to uh, in in the off season so then this also creates a lot of resentment in these um, in these towns as you have this this large uh, underemployed or seasonally underemployed uh, labor population, and so all, all of these things uh, fit into this this labor history, um, this agricultural labor um, exploitation that that really has uh, such a long um, and an enduring uh, footprint on on Brazilian history, and and it's not just unique to Brazil, but certainly as Brazil has been such a large agricultural um, producer and exporter in um, from colonial periods to today, uh, it speaks to how um, how certain populations are 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 being swept under the rug uh, in in the marketing of ethanol as a um, as a solution to our energy crises that, and, and it's not to say that, that ethanol might not be a, uh, a solution. It's certainly, I would imagine, I, I would, I would argue it's part of a solution, but it's important that we have that, that the costs that come along with it, uh, are made visible so that we can address them and, uh, and mitigate them and preemptively, uh, uh, incorporate solutions to them rather than assuming that these these issues don't exist now uh turning to the the car uh briefly um could you speak briefly to the history of the automobile in brazil the connection of ethanol to the creation of a local brazilian car industry in the 80s specifically and as you say how ethanol became a standard part of Brazil's national energy matrix uh, in, uh, into the 21st century? Sure. Um, so, I mean, Brazil's a really interesting, Brazil's auto history is very interesting. Um, Brazil's a country that really did not find sizable oil reserves until the 21st century. I mean, they, they find oil uh, in the late 1930s, but they don't find a lot. Um, and they are going to keep looking for more oil um, with very scarce um, or, or, or small reserves for really the, the rest of the 20th century. And so the, the move into the automobile age that the, the world experienced in the 20th century is one that um, Brazil, from the very beginning, had to um, adapt with their uh, with their own uh, limitations, and, and Brazil is not the only country that was really facing these kind of challenges. So actually, uh, the technology to use ethanol as a fuel has been around uh, as long as the internal and uh, as the internal engine has, um, or the internal combustion engine has. 
and and actually Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, uh, these were all they were all early supporters of using uh, ethanol rather than uh, petroleum-based fuel. Uh, and so actually, France and Germany, two countries that also did not have very large uh, oil reserves, were also early investors in research and development on um, on the use of um, of ethanol. In in the case of um, France, ethanol from grapes. In the in the case of Germany, ethanol from uh, potatoes. And so Brazil is going to invest in this very early, uh, and they're going to sustain that investment. Um, and 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 so it's really the the rise of uh, the import of of automobiles in into Brazil is also going to help push continued research on the use of uh, ethanol in these these imported um, vehicles. And so uh, state-led research in the 1920s showed that you could mix ethanol um, in the standard, in a standard um, uh, auto engine um, at a rate of up to 25% without having to make changes to the engine. Um, and so this becomes, in, in addition to demands from sugar producers to, to for support um, in, as the sugar industry is struggling in the early early 20th century. These are these are the two things that kind of are the foundation of the government um, um, setting this five percent mandated mixture in the national fuel supply in 1931 that I mentioned earlier. And so, um, fuel imports are going to continue to rise uh, along with with auto imports, um, but there's still a, um, a demand for the, de for the development of a domestic um, Brazilian auto industry. And um, notably in the, uh, during World War II, Brazil is going to uh, really be cut off from, uh, from the petroleum imports that really were so important to their, uh, their car sector. And they're going to dramatically increase the use of alternative fuels, uh, particularly including um, ethanol in this in in this time frame. That that's also going to help create more um, government support for continued support of the uh, of this ethanol mixture of this ethanol mandate. Um, and so, actually, in the 1950s, Brazilian researchers are going to more explicitly start trying to study. Well, okay. You have you can mix ethanol up to a certain point without making changes to the engine, but what about what changes do you have to make to the engine to be able to actually use ethanol um, at higher rates? And so um, this early research is really uh, going to ultimately yield by the 1970s. Uh, researchers are going to prove that um, uh, high um, the engines with um, the the ver of, of a varying engine, right? So like a um, not the 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 low power but um, high powered engines are going to be able to um, um, run on on ethanol as as efficiently as 
um, as efficiently as um, as petrol as petroleum fueled uh, low low cycle engines, right? Um, and so this is then going to um, really be the foundation for. Um, I mean, so Brazil's actually going to get the um, the rights to to the patent rights for this um, for this ethanol fueled engine, uh, and so then this is going to um, really be the foundation for the launch of of commercial ethanol fueled vehicles in Brazil. Um, and so this also requires a huge huge investment um, by the government. Again, because um, under this national ethanol program, um, they're going to they're, they're already incentivizing sugar producers to produce more uh, sugar to then produce more ethanol um, and then to subsidize the cost of ethanol um, to then be mixed in the national fuel supply. But then, in addition, with the 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 adapted engine, they're going to start um also incentivizing consumers to buy ethanol-fueled engines or ethanol-fueled cars, right? Um, and so this is going to, um, uh, they're going to launch these ethanol-fueled cars. The government's going to make an agreement with the National Auto um, Manufacturers Association. Um, and, and so the four major manufacturers in Brazil, which are multinationals, which are um, Ford, GM, Volkswagen, and Fiat are then going to start producing a certain quota of, of cars for the, for the national market. Um, they begin this in 1979. Um, takeoff is pretty slow, but again, ethanol, I mean, Peralta is also going to subsidize consumers buying ethanol-fueled cars, right? So, they're going to subsidize the loans. Um, they're going to subsidize the cost. Of, they being um, the government through Crowalco, there um, is going to subsidize the cost of fuel. Um, they're they're going to, they're going to really from top to bottom subsidize every step of this market so that um, consumers are actually going to many consumers are actually going to their first cars are going to be ethanol fueled cars because they can actually afford it where they would probably otherwise not have been able to. Um, so the ethanol car is actually going to uh, introduce uh, a large population to the car industry or to the car market that um, that had previously not been able to participate in the, in the individual car market in Brazil um, up to that point. And so that that's um, uh, the ethanol fuel car by the mid-1980s uh, is going to represent over 95% of all new cars sold on the road by 1985. Um, but droughts and that led to production problems for, um, for ethanol in the late 1980s, uh, along with, um, really with, with economic mismanagement by, uh, a transitioning government from, um, from the military, well, from the military, um, uh, dictatorship down to or back to a, a democracy or a democratic rule um, or a regime is going to then um, really under. All right, and so uh, if you could speak some to the subsidization of ethanol uh, and the, uh, and how that 
uh, came to be a standard part of uh, Brazil's national energy matrix in the 21st century uh, for our listeners? Certainly. Uh, so first, I would say um, the, the creation of the ethanol industry um, was built around the tying subsidies for um, for the sugar industry that was struggling to I- incentives to create ethanol. And so in that respect, um, subsidizing the ethanol industry actually was really uh, foundational to its very creation. Um, and, and so this, and then with the creation of uh, Pro-Alcohol, the National Ethanol Program in 1975, subsidies were the tool used to help incentivize um, producers to expand ethanol production and also to help um, uh, consumers be able to um, use, use ethanol because the price of ethanol was pushed down. Uh, and that, that becomes even more important with the creation of the ethanol-fueled car market, which is fundamentally uh, built on subsidizing uh, consumers to incentivize them to buy into um, this this ethanol-fueled market. And so um, these these all are 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 big steps in uh, normalizing subsidies in in the Brazilian ethanol industry. Um, and, and, and so interestingly, as the ethanol bill starts getting really expensive and the Brazilian economy uh, is really struggling in, in the 1980s, uh, people start complaining about how, um, how, how expensive ethanol is when oil prices, particularly in the latter half of the 1980s, are going to drop well below um, the the pre um, 1973 oil shock levels, uh, and so they're actually going to fall to something like uh, 14 dollars per barrel, and are really going to uh, oil prices are going to remain below or around 20 dollars or below um, per barrel for the rest of the 20th century, uh, and for ethanol, which needs uh, oil prices to be somewhere around um, 50 dollars. Per barrel for it to remain competitive. Uh, this this is also a big um, financial burden because where subsidies had been uh, had had presented as a good option uh, to help people buy into a market that was really rather experimental um, with the creation of the ethanol fueled car. Now ethanol fueled cars are way more expensive than gasoline fueled cars, and actually all these subsidies are helping sustain um, a market for a car that um, perhaps would not have been as competitive without these subsidies. And so, um, so this is where demand for uh, for a change in the ethanol fueled market um, or in in the Brazilian car market in the 1990s, early 1990s, is really going to turn opinions on on pro-alcohol, on ethanol, and on government subsidies for, for continuing for this industry. And so actually the, uh, the Brazilian president 
um, elected in 1990, uh, Fernando Collor, is going to really run on the promise that like when I come in to the presidency, I'm going to um, I'm going to end these these subsidies. And, and so he does deconstruct the Institute for Sugar and Alcohol or uh, the IAA. Um, ethanol is known as alcohol in Brazil. So um, he does deconstruct this, this institute. Um, but actually, uh, after extensive debate and lots and lots of uh, campaigns uh, and policy um, uh, proposals, he does sustain support for, for ethanol. Um, and, in, and this is in large part because, one, there are already so many drivers on the road that already have ethanol fuel cars that are going to that need these these continued subsidies to be able to continue to drive their cars. Um, but B, he's also going to he's also going to continue to support it under the under a real a, a new marketing of of ethanol, and and this has a lot to do with um, with the backlash that is starting to emerge in the 1980s, um, and as the economic value of ethanol is starting to become less competitive with with petroleum sugar producers are going to really start redirecting promotion of ethanol from an economic program which is what they were really pushing it as in the 1970s saying oil prices are really high ethanol is cheaper this is what we're going to help promote um uh, this is our national solution to an international problem uh, but then in, it actually researchers are going to prove in the 1980s that oil uh, or that ethanol fueled cars release about 69% less hydrocarbons, 13% uh, less nitrogen, and about 65% less carbon monoxide than gasoline fueled cars. And so that becomes the foundation of Sugar producers, ethanol, sugar and ethanol producers, re or pivoting marketing of ethanol from an economic program to an environmental program, uh, saying uh, when you drive an ethanol fuel car, you are doing something good for your city, uh, you are improving your air quality, uh, and so this also bakes into um, continued support for ethanol in uh, government support, which is all which is going to be. Um, or kind of built on another component of um, of, of diversifying ethanol, which is the um, introduction of cogeneration, which is um, that using the the steam basically that was um, produced in the production uh, in, in producing um, producing ethanol to to self um, propel these 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 ethanol distilleries um, that ultimately then producers are going to start redirecting this to they're, they're going to use this to produce electricity to make their uh, ethanol distilleries um, uh, self-powered and actually it's in the 90s that they're going to also start connecting some of these ethanol distilleries to the electricity grid so that uh, ethanol distilleries are going to also be able to produce not just ethanol, but also they're going to co-generate uh, electricity. And so these these become a big part 
of remarketing ethanol, not as an economic program, but rather as an environmental program. And it becomes the foundation for justifying continued uh, financial support for the ethanol industry. Uh, and that, that pivoting toward ethanol as a green uh, or environmental industry is really going to lay the foundation for the sustained incorporation of ethanol in Brazil's uh, energy infrastructure into the 21st century. Just fascinating. Uh, thank you for expanding on that. Uh, you speak of the spatial inequity that ethanol production and its part in green policy demonstrates. And I think this is an important part of your conclusion uh, or epilogue and the ways in which Brazil's and the global turn towards alternative fuels will lead to the increased ruination and pollution of of sites across the rural periphery in Brazil and more generally across the global south, uh, more broadly speaking. As a way of conclusion, could you speak to these effects? Uh, Sure. I mean, there's a... I I mean, this is always sort of a controversial part of my, my project, which is that we as a global society are facing an unquestionable crisis, an unquestioned crisis right now, which is uh, we need to come up with non, um, non-carbon focused energy options uh, as we are smoking ourselves out in, in our, on our own planet, basically. Um, and so ethanol presents this, this um, sort of idealized um, option where it, it has lower carbon emissions. Um, and cars that run on ethanol have lower carbon emissions than, than petroleum-fueled cars. Um, but it's really important to highlight that, they, that these, this industry has a whole history that, um, that also speaks to um, the, the cost that come along with large-scale energy produ- production. And those, those environmental and social costs are not just linked to petroleum-based industries. We're, we're so much more familiar with oil spills and, um, and you know, all of these, these uh, Superfund sites um, that, that are these toxic kind of um, toxic sites of, of of environmental extraction and decay, um, and and it it would be easy to ignore the environment. It has been easy, I think, in some ways, for policymakers to ignore some of the similar um, environmental costs, um, or at least some of the similar degradation um, that has come from from a, a non-carbon based fuel production like like eth- like the ethanol industry and so that's where i i it's important to bake these into a discussion about um, how can we come up with solutions to our energy crisis how can most likely ethanol going to be part of that that solution it imprints very easily onto the energy infrastructure that we have already built but it is also important to highlight how is the energy infrastructure that we've already built, uh, how is that already pushed out a lot of uh, pushed out of out of sight a lot of the costs that came along with a, a extensive extraction 
if, um, for carbon-based fuels? And how is it also structured to push out the or ignore the costs that come along with another fuel that imprints really easily onto that infrastructure? So it's really important as we start talking about um, investing more heavily in ethanol that, that we consider this Brazilian ethanol history where it is both um, a history of a, a cautionary tale and an inspiration. It, it, it highlights that energy transitions are possible. Brazil was able to implement a large scale uh, alternative energy, non-petroleum-based uh, fuel infrastructure um, that would not have otherwise existed without, without extensive intervention. Uh, but that, that infrastructure, that, that ethanol industry has its own history of exploitation, has its own history of uh, environmental degradation. It also has a, a history of um, innovation, right? So the, the, the innovation to, to use um, the NOS as a, as a fertilizer alternative, the, um, the, the collective bargaining um, agreement that, that was the product of these, these sugar workers, uh, temporary sugar workers uh, leading these strikes in the 80s. These are all things that are also points of inspiration um, and, and innovation. And I think that um, they're, they're all part of this history and they need to all be considered when we talk about um, a large scale transition to a, a fuel like like ethanol or a large scale transition to any uh, any different fuel, which which comes with a, a heavy production cost that that we are often uninterested in, in considering. Very true. Uh, and thank you for that. Um, uh, well, Dr. Eaglin, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, to can, conclude- I make one quick, can I make one quick correction earlier? I. Yes. I mentioned the, um, the, the difference in engines. Uh, so for low, low compression engines uh, run on petroleum, lower compression engines and higher compression engines are able to run efficiently on, on ethanol. And that is the, the, the engine. And there are a lot of other adaptations that had to be included to run a high engine, uh, a high compression engine on ethanol in a um, in a car, and these are a lot of the, the adaptations that Brazilian researchers were were working on, uh, and were were able to help bring to market um, in in the 1970s with the the launch of the ethanol fueled car. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, but to conclude, um, if I may ask, uh, what are you working on now? Yeah, so um, I've. I, I've worked on this this ethanol industry, and um, and and I mentioned that the the military dictatorship, um, after the oil shock of 1973, really comes up with this um, energy diversification agenda, uh, and that includes um, expanding exploration of of riskier oil uh, oil reserves. Um, which will ultimately, many decades later, yield the, the deep water off, offshore oil reserves that Brazil finds in the 21st century. Um, that, that also includes expanding hydroelectric uh, infrastructure. Um, but 
It also includes the expansion or expanded investment in their nuclear energy uh, industry. And so I'm actually working on a history of that, that nuclear energy industry um, right now. And so I was able to, to do, so actually Germany, uh, West Germany at the time was a, a huge investor in this um, nuclear energy industry in Brazil. And so I was able to do a lot of, a lot of work on that in, in Germany. And I'm looking forward to getting back to Brazil to keep, keep pushing that project forward. Very excited to, uh, to see that project come to fruition in the future. Um, and thank you for the wonderful text and enjoyed the conversation today. Uh, and thank you for joining uh, the show. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you so much.